So now for our sermon, as you may remember, we've been in this series on the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time now, quite a number of weeks. Uh, and today also happens to be Palm Sunday, Significant Sunday. And I figured sort of to, to fit both of those together as we've been working through Matthew, and certainly this was all planned out, uh, scheduled accordingly, knowing this would be Palm Sunday, we're going to take a look at the triumphal entry, which is what Palm Sunday is all about. Uh, and we're going to be taking a look at the triumphal entry in the Gospel of Matthew. So you can be opening up your Bibles now, turn to Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and this is that wondrous triumphal entry. Uh, And this is one of those passages that I think sometimes we come to and sort of, oh, this is an interesting passage. You know, Jesus here, he's going up to Jerusalem, certainly for the Passover feast that's approaching. Uh, And, you know, well, as he he winds up approaching the city, he hops on this donkey and he rides in. And we have these people and they're sort of all excited and celebrating. And, you know, they're they're taking palm branches and and sort of, you know, putting them on the ground and celebrating. And, And we think it's sort of very fascinating and it's a wonderful story. And, and great, but I think we often miss so much of really what's going on and, and what's being said in the midst of this passage. I think there's really a, a great richness theologically of what's being declared here, what Jesus is saying as he's getting on this donkey, going into the city. Uh, and certainly even the, the Jews who are there celebrating and they're shouting their hosannas and whatnot, they understand to a degree, we'll sort of talk about in, in a nuanced way, they don't fully understand what, what this triumphal entry is about, but they understand to an extent what's going on. And, and we're going to really dig deep here and say, well, what is this triumphal entry, right? What's going on here? What's Jesus saying? What is being proclaimed here? And so we're going to dig deep uh, and do that. And we'll just dive right in now. We're going to start uh, with the first verse here in chapter 21. Uh, and I'll pause at different points and sort of interject uh, and do our teaching as we sort of move our way through the text here. And then we'll do what we always do and sort of recap, sum up what we've learned and then say, well, hey, how do we apply this to our lives? And so we'll talk about application as well. So starting, verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And now here in verse 5, we get this quote. It's from Zechariah 9.9. And it says, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches. Just a a note here as they cut these branches from the trees. We see in the Gospel of John that these are specifically identified as palm trees, uh, palm branches here that they are cutting from the trees. And that becomes significant. We'll sort of talk about that as we sort of flesh this out a bit. But so we have here others cutting uh, branches, palm branches from the trees, and they spread them, right, spread them on the road. 
I want to pause here, having, having finished verse 8 here, we'll, we'll get to verse 9 and talk all about that. Uh, but sort of here I want, to, I want to pause and say, well, sort of what's going on here? So we have Jesus, right, and, and he winds up, he tells the disciples, go, go get this donkey, bring it to me, uh, and I'll get on it. I'm going to ride, it on, uh, ride on it into the city, uh, and they put the cloaks, right, down for him to sit on on the donkey. But then the people around, which we're going to see, they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, right, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's verse 9. Uh, we'll get there, but they're taking their cloaks, they're putting them on the ground, they're taking these, these branches, as John talks about. Their palm branch, they're putting those on the road, right, for Jesus to walk over as he's entering Jerusalem as he heads on in. And sort of what's going on here? It's sort of a remark- remarkable passage and event, but sort of what's being said? What, what, what is taking place here? Uh, and and uh, to put it simply, it's a triumphal entry. And you might say, you know, I get that, Pastor Steve. You know, right above verse 1, I read the little title or heading for, for this section, and it says the triumphal entry. So I realize this is a triumphal entry. But, but what does that mean, right? What, what is a triumphal entry? What's being said in the midst of this triumphal entry? And so I want to take some time really to talk about that, flesh it out a bit. Uh, and triumphal entries were something that were uh, commonplace in the ancient world, really all over, uh, and were certainly commonplace and frequent in the ancient Near East, and this is sort of the cultural backdrop here for Jesus, for the Jews. Uh, it was frequent in the ancient Near East. And here's sort of how it, how it worked, how it operated. So the king, right, if there was some sort of enemy or nation that had risen up that was a threat uh, to the king's kingdom, uh, the king would go and he would, he would leave his, his territory, right, or his city, and he'd go out to do battle, right, and go and, and win a victory, right? And as he would go out to do battle, what would be natural uh, would be to, this is what had come about, that, that he would get on his appropriate wartime mount, which would have been a horse, Right? Now, if we go way back in the ancient Near East, horses actually didn't show up until around 2000 BC. Before that, it was just donkeys. And so ancient Near Eastern kings, uh, really at all times, even going into battle, would have ridden on donkeys, or even more specifically, would have used donkeys to pull chariots, and they would have ridden behind them in the chariots. But, but by the time we're speaking of, uh, donkeys had sort of started to, to be phased out a bit in regard to uh, wartime. Right? They weren't as, as useful is effective in that role, and horses had, had, horses had now entered the ancient Near Eastern picture, and so they had really taken over as, as the wartime animal, uh, the wartime mount or, or animal that would have pulled the chariot that the king would have been on. So, okay, you know, you have this, this nation that's rising up against uh, some ancient Near Eastern uh, kingdom, and the king would say, well, yep, I need to go out, I need to go and do battle and wage war, so he'd get on his horse or be pulled in a chariot by his horse and go out and do battle, and then he would be victorious right? And after being victorious, what would he do? Well, he would come back to his capital city uh, and he would get off of that war horse or off of the chariot being pulled by the war horse uh, and he would get on a donkey and donkeys sort of coming back to that history that I'd spoken of in in relationship to donkeys. They had been around in the ancient Near East for, for quite a great span of time, right? And so even before horses were ever there, uh, what kings rode was donkeys, right? They rode on donkeys. And so donkeys took on this symbolism, if you know, in a sense of royalty, right? If you were riding a donkey, you were sort of saying, I'm the king, I'm royalty, and they carried that symbolism. Uh, but then again, as the horse started to come in and, and sort of took the place of the donkey in relationship to wartime, while still maintaining that symbolism of royalty, the donkey now also became associated with peace, 
with peacetime. So for the war, the king would go out, he'd ride out on his horse, but then after winning that victory, he'd get off the war horse, because the war's done, he's won the victory, and now this peace in the land, right? There is peace. That, that oppressor, that foreign nation, they have been subjected, put under the authority of that king and his nation, and now there was this wondrous time of peace in the kingdom. And so he'd get off his horse, he'd get on that donkey, symbolizing who he was, he was the king, but also sort of what he had accomplished. He'd gone, he'd won a victory, and now there is this wondrous time of peace. And so it was a symbol of that peace. And what would happen is now he'd, he'd be on his donkey and he's riding into his capital city uh, and the people there would give him, in effect, sort of the royal treatment. They would roll out the red carpet and that red carpet in that day and age was taking off your cloak, throwing it on the ground and sort of paving the way, in a sense, with your cloaks and not just with cloaks, but you could do this with branches as well, paving the way for the king, right? And he would ride on in and what would you be doing? You'd be welcoming your victorious king. You would be celebrating him, praising him, right? And this was sort of triumphal entry in the ancient Near East. And this is what's going on here. This is, is what's being spoken of. And I want to highlight one additional point in relationship to donkeys, this sort of uh, a, a lot of symbolism to donkeys as a result of sort of the varying roles that occurred over time. Certainly a symbol of royalty, but as I said, also a symbol of, of peacetime, of peace as well. But ultimately, as as horses became more and more dominant, it came to be that while, while donkeys still maintained that symbolism of royalty, at, at the same time, even if, even if it seems contradictory, they were sort of viewed as sort of the lowly animal, right? If you wanted to ride a, a nice animal, a nice mount, well, you'd pick a horse, right? You wouldn't pick uh, a donkey. Uh, and so the donkey was sort of viewed in regard to lowliness. And so it is really here a, a perfect imagery uh, and symbolism for Jesus. It speaks of him as royalty. He is the king. He is the, the messianic king. And that's absolutely what's being declared here, that he is the king who, who comes to bring victory, right? We have to realize usually a triumphal entry, it happens after the triumph, after the victory. Uh, but here Jesus effectively does it ahead of time because his victory is going to involve death itself. He's going to to die, and so it makes sense for him to do that ahead of time. So here he's sort of doing it ahead of time and saying that he's going to go and win a victory. He's the king, the symbolism of the donkey there, but he's going to go and win a victory, and that victory is ultimately against sin. It's against sin and death and its power in our lives. Uh, it's this enemy of ours that, that we can't triumph over on our own, but Christ says, don't worry. I'll go. I'll take your place. I'll take your sin. I'll take the wrath of God, and I will defeat sin and its power in your life if only you repent and believe in me. And so he triumphs over sin, and what does he bring about? And here's the symbolism of, of the donkey, he brings about peace, right? Apart from what he has done for us on the cross, well, there's no peace between God and man. We are rightfully under his judgment. But, but in Christ, through what he did on the cross and being raised from the dead, and we're going to focus on that on Good Friday, on Easter, and, and celebrate that uh, to be sure, right? What he accomplished, he made atonement for our sin. And now that our sin, it's it sort of, it's wiped away. We've been cleansed of our sin. It, it no longer stands against us, right? Now we're no longer under the wrath of God, but now there's peace between God and man, right? There is peace between us. So he has won a victory and ushered in peace. But again, that added symbolism of the donkey of, of humility, humble lowliness, he shows real, really here how he's going to go and win that victory. And it's going to involve a humbling of himself, a great humbling of himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross, taking our place, taking our sin, taking the wrath of God. And so it speaks of his kingship. He's the messianic king. He's one who wins a victory and ushers in peace, uh, but he also does it in a lowly way. And so that's what's being said here. And he's fulfilling this prophecy here as he's doing this. He's making a declaration to all the people there. Here 
here's who I am. I'm that triumphant messianic king who wins that victory, ushers in peace, right? I'm the king, and I do it through humbling myself. But he's also fulfilling that passage, that, that prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, which again speaks of a triumphal entry. That's what it's speaking of, and he is the fulfillment of that passage, right? That prophecy there. So now I want to continue to, to read on here, uh, and we, we see the crowd's response. We sort of already read about it a little bit in verse 8, but, but it continues in verse 9. So it says, A very large cr- crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them uh, on the road. And I actually do want to make one more note about that verse. I know we would already read that, but... Um, in reference to what's going on here with the palm branches, we have to understand a little bit uh, of the symbolism of the palm branch, and it had become a symbol for uh, national Israel, right? It was very much a, a nationalistic emblem, uh, kind of like for us, the flag. And so what they're doing here is they're cutting, as they're cutting the palm branches, right, they're laying them, them down. It's sort of, it's almost like they're waving the American flag, except it's not America for them, but it, it's, it's the Jews. It's the, the Jewish people. Uh, and so it had become a symbol of the Jewish people, and there's very much nationalistic pride here. And we have to understand the way in which they're interpreting what Jesus is doing, right? They understand here, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go on to verse 9, but they understand that this is a triumphal entry. They get that. They get that Jesus is saying, hey, here's who I am. I'm the king. I'm the messianic king, right? It's quite clear as we're going to read on in verse 9. They affirm him as the son of David. That means the Messiah. So they get this is the messianic king, right? We understand who he is. And and there's this triumphal entry. He's saying that he's one who's going to go and win a victory and usher in peace, right? So they get all that. Uh, but they misunderstand the specifics of it. They don't think that it's about sin, that that's the enemy, that's the oppressor that that Christ is going to win victory over and against and usher in peace between God and man by doing that. They they don't see that. They see this all in in sort of Jewish nationalistic terms, which is, well, here's our Messiah, right? And this is a triumphal entry. He's going to come and he's going to win a victory for us. Surely that's against the Roman Empire, right? We're under their authority, right, subjected to them, and he's going to come and overthrow them, win a victory against them, and then, right, we'll have peace here. The people of God, the nation of Israel, uh, the Jews, they'll experience peace there. That's their sense, and so that's why they're sort of waving their national flag, in a sense, uh, of the palm branch, laying it down on, on the road. That's what's going on there, right? So they, right, it says, others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road, and then going on, it says, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, Right? And so as I had, have already mentioned, quite clearly, son of David, they're identifying him as the Messiah. They understand that. They're saying, hey, you're the Messianic king. Right? We understand that. We're affirming you as that. And what else are they saying? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, here, th- this is Aramaic here. It's also Hebrew. It, it's actually the same in both. But clearly here it happens to be the Aramaic. Uh, and it's, it's referring back to Psalm 118, uh, verse 25. And actually the next line here is going to be actually Psalm 118, verse 26. So they're drawing quite a bit here from Psalm 118. Here in saying Hosanna, it's verse 25. Uh, in, in most literally, it means save, right? It's sort of that exclamation, save, save us. Uh, Hosha means save, and na added to it is just sort of uh, emphatic. So it's this very emphatic, save us. You're, you're the Messiah, right? 
they understand this is a triumphal entry. You're the triumphant king. So triumph for us. Save us. But again, in their terms, it's from the Romans. That's their view on this. They don't really understand what it's really all about. So they're saying, save us. But, but Hosanna, through sort of typical liturgical usage amongst the Jews, had become, in a sense, sort of an exclamation of praise as well. So it's sort of, we're praising you. Praise to, to, to the son of David, the Messiah, right? And, and save us, right? They understand he's there to save. They just misunderstand how he's going to save and what that salvation really looks like. But then they go on, and again, this is from the next verse in Psalm 118, as they're really drawing upon Psalm 118, understanding that that this is pointing toward the Messiah, right? They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And sort of before we talk about what does this mean, we really need to understand Psalm 118, uh, sort of what's going on there. And really through and through Psalm 118, it's a triumphal entry. If we actually understand what's taking place, right, we have a, a Davidic king here who clearly nations or nation or nations have risen up against the people of God in this Davidic king. We don't know which king it was, but some king in the line of David, right, went out in the name of, of, of the Lord in service to him and, and went and defeated this nation or these nations that rose up against God's people. And so he went out, did battle, went to war, right, triumphed over them, won that victory, and now what is he doing? He comes back to his city, to Jerusalem, and there's this triumphal entry, right? He's welcomed back as this victorious king, right, the king of God's people, this victorious king who has ushered in peace for them. So there's this triumphal entry that's taking place. And it says here in this context, in Psalm 118 here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the king himself who went out and did battle for the people of God in the name of the Lord. And here he is coming back to his people, to his capital city, and it's saying, blessed is he, right? And what's being spoken of here is to say that he's being welcomed and praised. The people are uh, issuing forth blessings to him. It's sort of the classic greeting, right? Peace to you, peace peace be upon you. And so he's being blessed or greeted, welcomed, but also the word blessing or or blessed here can mean in a sense uh, uh, praised, right? Blessed or praised. That's one of the ways that this word can be understood and interpreted. So he's being welcomed with that classic blessing. That's what's being said, but it's also that he's being praised, right? So here's the king coming up to, to Jerusalem, coming back to his city, having won this victory, ushering in peace, and he's being welcomed and praised by the people, celebrated, right? And certainly this had to do with that specific instance involving that king in the line of David. Uh, But the Jews understood that there was more in view here. It wasn't just about that that event in prior history. They understood that that was pointing forward, rightly so, they understood this, to the Messiah. And here they are saying, hey, we affirm this about you. You're, You're the one that this passage is really pointing forward to and talking about, right? That true king in the line of David who goes and does battle, right? Again, they misunderstood who Jesus was going to go and do battle against. They thought the Romans, not sin, but they understood, you know, you're our king. You're the king who's going to go, the messianic king, and go and do battle, win a victory, and usher in peace. They understood that. And so that's why they're saying, we're affirming this. So right, they're quoting from this, they're applying it to Jesus and saying, yep, you're that Messiah, you're the one, right? You are the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and so this is a triumphal entry drawing upon that. So then reading on here, we get to the next line here, what they're sort of shouting out. And they wind up saying here, Hosanna in the highest heaven. A little more literally, it's Hosanna in the highest. But that's a a good translation here from the NIV. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That's what's being spoken of. To sort of put it simply, the idea is, here we are, 
right? We're, we're celebrating here uh, our, our messianic king here, uh, and we are shouting forth here on earth our hosannas, save us, save us, and, and sort of celebrating and shouting forth praises. And what they're saying is, may the angels in heaven also join in uh, in this celebration and praise and exclamation and shouting forth of save, save, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's sort of, we on earth are saying our Hosannas and may the angels in heaven join in as well and shout forth their Hosannas as well. Uh, celebrating, of course, right, that salvation that this messianic king was going to bring about. And I have no, no doubt uh, that, of course, the angels were indeed celebrating and shouting forth their Hosannas. But the people on earth, they didn't understand what that salvation really looked like, whereas the angels in heaven, while they would have mourned what Christ was going to have to endure to bring it about, they would have been celebrating, of course, what he was going to do and and the salvation that he would bring about for God's people, for all those who would trust in him. So then it goes on, verse 10, says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Right, you can imagine sort of this major event is taking place right on the road there, headed into Jerusalem. You know, something's going on, this sort of a buzz in the city. You know, people are sort of stirred up. What's going on? What's happening here? This is at the time of a pilgrimage feast. We have the Passover. So at this time, lots of people would have been coming up to, to Jerusalem, would have been packed and overflowing. And, and even people who sort of wouldn't have been acquainted with Jesus and his teaching, right? They might have been saying, who is this? Who's this guy? What's he doing? What's going on here? Uh, and so so we see the crowd's response in verse 11. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And they're certainly right that, that he's a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, but of course he's, he's much more than that. He's, he's prophet, he's priest, he's king, the messianic king. He's God the son himself. But of course they certainly do at least identify him here as, as Jesus, that prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So I kind of want to come back here and look at this big picture. And again, I said this is one of those passages where I think you can sort of come to it and say, oh, isn't this sort of a neat story and be a little bit excited about what's going on here, but sort of miss what it's really all about, what it's really saying. Uh, And what it's really saying is it's this powerful declaration. Jesus was declaring it to the Jews who are right there, who understood this as a triumphal entry. It's being declared to us as we come to Scripture here and read this. And what's being said is who Jesus is and, and what he's doing here, what he's about to do, right? Thinking of Good Friday, his death, his resurrection, all of that. And it's saying he's the king, he's the Messiah, right? Very clearly it's saying that. The people picked up on that as well. He's the king, he is the Messiah, and he is that triumphant, victorious king. He is going to win a battle. The Jews didn't understand what that battle was going to look like, right? But we understand that it was a battle, it was a, a war that was waged, not against the Romans, some earthly nation, right? Some nation state, but it was a battle that was waged a war that was waged against sin, that great oppressor of mankind, right? And we have no way on our own of of freeing ourselves from from those chains, from that oppression. And so Christ said, hey, I'm going to come. I'm going to become a person, right? Uh, Think of his incarnation. Think of Christmas, right? He came, right, to this earth, became one of us, fully God, but fully man, and said, not only am I going to do that, but I'm going to go and head to a cross, and there I will triumph through my death, through my resurrection. I will triumph over this sin. I will defeat it. I will crush it. You, mankind, you can't deal with it, but I will do it. And how does he do it? Actually, by humbling himself and ultimately to the point of of death, death on a cross. He says, right, the way I'm going to triumph might seem a little bit bizarre to most people. Usually you think of triumphing and it seems to be this powerful victory with swords and spears and guns and whatnot, right? And yet 
he's going to tri triumph in a way that on the surface might look like a defeat, but in fact it is actually a triumph. He goes to a cross, he takes our place, takes the place of sinful man, right, takes the punishment for sin so that if we trust in him, right, that punishment doesn't fall on us. He has taken it for us. Our sins have been paid for, right, they're washed away, cleansed, and, and we stand before God as, as forgiven, right, and we have everlasting life in him. And so he, he's that messianic king who goes and wins that victory for God's people. And in doing so, in winning that victory, what does he do? He ushers in peace for the people of God. Right? There's now peace between God and man. For those who trust in Christ, we have peace with God forever and ever and ever through the atonement that Christ brought about on the cross. Right? And that's what this passage is all about. That is what it's saying. And so as we think of, well, you know, how do we apply this to our lives? What's sort of our application? What's our takeaway? We always want to understand things, but then it's always good to say, well, what does that mean for me? How do I apply this to my life? And I want to give an application really for two different sets of people, right? For those who maybe you would say, I just haven't yet trusted in Christ. I haven't taken that step to, to give my life to him, to repent, believe in him. I just, maybe you have your doubts, your hesitations. You're just, you're just sort of not there. Then here's the application for you. Repent, believe, right? Understand what this is saying. Understand it is truth. He is that messianic king. He is God the son. He did fight for us and defeat sin, right? He went to a cross. He died for us. He rose from the dead. As I said this week, it, it, we're, we're focusing entirely on that, his death, his resurrection in, in Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter. Understand it. Believe it. Yes, he died for me. He paid the penalty for my sin so that I could be forgiven and set free and have everlasting life. Believe it. Trust in him with a repentant heart and, and be forgiven. Receive that everlasting life. Receive that peace now between you and God. Experience life in him and the joy of eternal life, of perfect peace and joy in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. That's what's in store for God's people in eternity. And so repent, believe. If you haven't yet come to that place, that's your challenge. That's your application. Be confronted with the truth in this passage and say, I believe. And I'm yours, Lord. I want to follow you all my days. You're everything to me. I believe I trust in you for forgiveness. That's your application. But for the other group of people, maybe you'd say, Pastor Steve, I've, I've done that. I've done that. I've given my life to the Lord. I've repented. I've trusted in, in him. Is there another application for me? And there is, right? I'm not going to leave you out. There's one for you. Uh, and, and for those of us who are already believers, who've already trusted in Christ, here's our application. And it's just to celebrate in a sense, effectively, what this passage is all about, right? Celebrate Christ as your triumphant, victorious king, right? Celebrate him as the one who went and did battle against sin. He fought that, that battle and won that victory that we could not win. He did that for us so that we might be forgiven and have peace and have everlasting life, right? And just celebrate that. I mean, I think of, of the Jews here who don't even understand the full extent of the salvation that he's going to, to bring about, right? They just think of in nationalistic terms. They don't understand it's far greater than that. And yet there they are sort of celebrating Hosanna, right? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're celebrating. You can imagine them sort of singing, dancing for joy. They're, they're just so excited. And they don't even understand the full scope of it. They're misinterpreting it. But, but we realize something far greater is happening in the midst of this, right? It's speaking to something far greater. And so how much more so ought we to be celebrating what Christ really did as our triumphant king, right? Doing away with our sin, paying for it in full so that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. And we should be 
shouting that from the rooftops, just celebrating it, singing God's praises day after day after day, just thanking Christ and just worshiping him and celebrating him and praising him. That's what we ought to be doing day after day in every moment of our lives. But, but sort of how much more so this week, right, with it being Palm Sunday and Good Friday approaching and then Easter just after that, how much more so should we be focused on Christ as our triumphant King, our Savior, and just be celebrating Him and praising Him all ultimately for His glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our triumphant King. You fought a battle that we couldn't fight, that we couldn't win. The battle against sin, which held us captive, and we had no hope apart from you. But you came. As our triumphant king, you went to a cross. You humbled yourself in that way to triumph over sin, to pay for it in full so that through faith in you we might be forgiven. And through your victory, Lord, you have ushered in peace for us, for the people of God, those who truly trust in you. We thank you for that peace. We thank you for that everlasting life that we have in you. For those of us who, who haven't yet come to that place of trusting you, may you work in their hearts, lead them to that saving faith, repentance and faith, and may they enter into your kingdom and receive life everlasting. For those of us who are already your, your people and have trusted in you, may we just celebrate you and what you have done, Lord. May we not take it for granted, but may we just be utterly blown away by you and your love and your great working on the cross and in your resurrection. And may we just pour forth thanksgiving, praise, and adoration. And may we just, every moment of every day, just be singing your praises in our hearts, but even out loud as well, Lord, all for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.